I want to stay on the theme a little bit of insight um, about, to me, insight is about perspective. It's about a shift in perspective. And it's generally a shift in perspective from a, what could be described as a very narrow vortex the narrow vortex meaning the, the uh, chronic preoccupation that many of us live in with our own internal dialogue that you talked about. Uh, just a real devotion to our, our view of ourselves, our history, our psychological patterns, our our goals, our memories, our dreams, everything that so much of our life is really defined by this very uh, narrow view. And you could say that the, that the Dharma perspective or insight is into um, going from that narrow vortex to a wider, more panoramic sense of of our place in the world and the universe, uh, how we, how we, um, how our existence really relates not just to our own uh, internal views, but how it relates to the world around us, and how even our very individual experience is made up of so many non-personal elements, and. Uh, I couldn't help today, but uh, seeing that uh, that the the world, the kind of wider world, was I, I can't say everybody, but here a lot of people were pretty focused on the the high drama of the impeachment. Any of you thought about the impeachment today, or even gave it a consideration? But it, when we're involved in the impeachment drama, we engage with it in our own individual, unique way. And I know for me that when, I'm, when I am not bringing much perspective to it, when, I, when I'm not uh, knowing what my mind is doing, not really clearly comprehending the way that I'm relating to it, I've just naturally start inclining toward, I want to get those guys. <laughs> I want to be, you know, I, I, I basically turns into a sporting event where I want, to, I want my, my team to win and I want those people to lose. And, and there's us and there's them and there's self and other and I get caught in that dualistic fixation of self and other and and I lose the perspective of this being maybe uh, crucial and important for our, uh, the future of our democracy and constitution. And, and I, I can reflect on all the harm that's been caused and I want that harm to end and all that. So some of it is wholesome and noble, but some of it is just this very, I end up back in another narrow vortex that's all about 
uh, some kind of measurement of whether things or I'm okay, others are okay, um, winners, losers, all of that. So I thought as a, as a way of bringing a little perspective tonight, both stepping out of my own uh, dualistic fixation on us and them, I thought I would bring a, a, a more cosmic perspective, which is... Uh, this is through the doorway of, of astronomy, for example. And I have read this before. I can't remember the last time. But this is a, a talk given about a photograph that was taken of planet Earth on February 14, 1990, by the Voyager space probe from a record distance of about 6 billion kilometers or 3.7 billion miles and in the photograph earth's apparent size is less than a pixel the planet appears as a tiny dot against the vastness of space among bands of sunlight reflected by the camera during a public lecture at cornell university in 1994 Carl Sagan presented the image to the audience and shared his reflections. And that's what I wanted to share tonight, just part of our talk on insight. We succeeded in taking that picture from deep space. And if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being you, who ever lived, lived out their lives, the aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here, there on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It is up to us. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling, is a humbling, and I might add a character-building experience 
To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits that this distant image of our t- than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly and compassionately with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale dot, the only home we've ever known. <clears throat> so now that's perspective. That's, that's insight. And this is, the, this is just one flavor of insight that comes when we come out of the narrow view of our preoccupations to this wider circle of connection and understanding. So we do it both by widening our view, but we also do it by narrowing our view, by turning toward that which we usually um, run from, that which we usually... You know, there, I don't know how many of you ever studied studied um, psychology and studied Wilhelm Reich. He had this he had this whole idea of uh, I mean, it, he had a wild views, but one of his ideas is that we are this amazing vessel of an energetic vessel and. Our humanness and the aspects of our humanness are really mysterious. But we, we, are, we have, as the Buddha put it, we have six senses. We have one mental sense, thoughts, images. Um, and then we have five physical senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. And then we have and the, the mind and body to come together for the, our, what we call our emotional life. And when, I don't know why I'm telling you this, now I forgot the, th- the, the thread. Insight. Insight. When we are able to, um, when we are able to experience our life, actually feel it, we become very articulate on all dimensions of our being. We become our eyes are clear, our mind is clear, our taste is more meaningful, the things we taste, it's just so, tastes come alive when we are, the dust of memory is a little clear, taste comes alive. Our hearts are resonant, they respond to pain with compassion, the quivering, they respond to joy with with a kind of altruism, able to join with others in their joy, respond to, to uh, the, the magic of sensuality or sexuality through uh, awakening of our, of our, uh, our sexual organs, etc. And it's said that when people are not able to actually feel emotion, able to stay in, one, in one's body in the face of the, of the contact that we have with life. It's constantly impinging on all of our senses because we're super sensitive beings. Those who can't feel, who can't turn toward their experience, end up going two directions very quickly. Almost instantaneously, people either go right into their thoughts and start ruminating, or they, they go into their sexuality, and then they view the world just 
through, uh, through sexual desire. And then the you know, exploitation because of that tendency towards sexuality is the loss of intimacy, loss of clarity, loss of caring. And when, of course, when we end up in our thoughts a lot, we, we end up living mostly in a virtual reality, in a, in a reality of our imagination. And we actually lose contact with each other. So the more we live in sexuality and then the cravings of our, our body and our senses, that constant search for something else, that makes us very small. It makes us very hungry. We end up being what the, metaphorically, we end up incarnating again and again into this realm of experience called the realm of the hungry ghosts where we are we increasingly inwardly become beings with little mouths and huge stomachs. We can't be satisfied. Or we end up spending a lot of time just fabricating reality and frightening ourselves, frightening other, other people and, and projecting all of our unexamined feelings and experiences onto the world. And then thinking that's how the world is not knowing that it's a creation of our own mind in the way that we relate to things. So insight practice not only is widening our view to take in the the vastness of space and the vastness of our mind, which really has no limits. Like where's the limit to your mind? Mind is not in the head. Nobody's ever seen a mind in the head. In the teachings, we talk about the nature of mind, and the nature of mind is open. The nature of it is clarity, is cognizance, is is awareness, consciousness. And the expression of that is all the, the, um, it's called unconfined capacity, this capacity to to connect and and to discern, to to act, to learn, to act wisely, to act lovingly. All those qualities uh, flow from the nature of mind, but it's vast. It's without any limits. So that's one way. But then there is this very tender examination of our, our mind and body. And I would say that the, that the, uh, the secret, I think, uh, one of the secrets to finding a balance in this crazy world and being able to be more responsive to it and a little less reactive, a little less um, tight, a little less um, involved in me and mine is is to delicately and continuously learn about this in a very narrow, in a very microscopic way, this mind-body process, how it, actually, how it actually shows up moment by moment. So not just having this wide view, but a very narrow, microscopic, detailed analysis, not thinking analysis, but a silent observation of the moment-to-moment condition of uh, 
moment-to-moment experience that's happening through the senses. What's coming through the senses met with awareness, with knowing what is being known. And if one stays here long enough in a continuous way, moment by moment by moment by moment, gathering and sustaining, coming to a single point, the point of life, right where it's touching you, right in the moment when something is happening to you, you do that over and over again. There's three things that you inevitably start to see. I know I probably talk about this every week in some form. But this, these three things that one sees are like a secret teaching, an open secret. If we just paid attention, you would see this. And it's so obvious that we tend to miss it. But it, is the, it makes a total difference to how we live our lives, to whether or not we, we um, fall into clinging, fall into identification, get caught up in me and mine, or we learn to let go, learn to live in harmony with life, learn to find a place of balance that meets life a little with less reactivity. Those three things that one can notice. What's the first of the, what we would call the universal or common characteristics that reveal themselves? One of the three characteristics that reveals itself when we just pay attention. The first one, the first characteristic, the difference that makes a difference. And in the, in the more macro way, this, this first characteristic was the Buddha's guru, Buddha's, the Buddha's teacher. It is what's called anicca. Anicca, which means every little experience that can be known through our senses has the nature to arise and vanish. That is a difference that makes a difference. Anything that can be known, moment by moment, you study this, you study this body, we call that myself. But when you observe this body very carefully, whether it's under a microscope or whether it's with just the observing power of of continuity of mindfulness, you see that everything that can be known about this body is arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. Every sensation, every little stream, there is nothing in this body that is solid and stable. And if you turn up that, the, the power on your, on your observation, you, it is, there's so much change that you can't, and it's, so, it's, it's coming and going so much that if you turn up the power, you would find nothing but space. You wouldn't even find anything that exists independently. That's a difference that makes a difference. So this so-called self, this my body is myself, it kind of breaks down a little bit when you put it under a microscope. Because that which is arising and vanishing is marked with another quality. And, this, and one develops some insight into this. 
what is marked by impermanence is also marked by selflessness. It's not me. There's no me in it. There's no my. There's no mine. From that perspective of moment-to-moment experience, so we begin to develop insight into the selflessness of this body. That it doesn't, you know, we know in the general sense, as Jack Cornfield puts it, it's a rent-a-body. You know, it's not, it, it comes, in, you know, we all know that everybody's born and everybody dies. But you can begin to see that, that momentariness, that selflessness uh, through just paying attention to it. Is there anything that, is, that stays the same that you can say, this is me. Now, if you get, because our usual conventional lack of mindfulness, we observe this body from a, a great distance, perception of the body from a distance makes it seem really solid, monolithic. And because of the proximity of our usual observation, this body seems like, yeah, this is a body and it's my body. I live in it. Or it lives in me, whatever you want. But the, more, the closer you get and the more continuous the observation, you, you start to see, well, body, when I let go of the idea of body, what do I actually experience? And what happens when I pay attention moment to moment? It's just, it's just a changing, selfless condition. So the first characteristic is you start to see impermanence, change. Second, it is what is impermanent and changing is without any self. It can't be anything that is not stable. It can't be me or mine. And the third, which is tied into the first two, is whatever is changing and selfless cannot um, give anyone lasting satisfaction or stability, like I said before. It is inherently marked by unsatisfactoriness, unreliability. And if you try to find something stable, something secure, something permanent, something that one can rely on in something that's changing, you, you get stressed out, you suffer. So the more you see that this body is impermanent, mind is impermanent, mind objects are impermanent, everything is impermanent, macro, micro, when you see the whole world is marked by impermanence, and you see the whole world is marked by selflessness, there's no, there's no solid self that exists completely independently and securely, when you see that none of it can be clung to, as a reliable source of relief, something in us, something in you, lets go. Something in you lets go. Stop falling into what the Buddha called the three primary, three main misperceptions, main expressions of delusion, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is selfless to be myself and take that, that which is unreliable and unsatisfactory to be a source of satisfaction. Those three misperceptions makes us crazy. It makes us cling to what will not give us relief. It makes us um, 
Does this seem accessible, what I'm saying? Does it seem interesting or does it seem too obscure? It is this kind of insight into these characteristics that changes the whole game of life. And as the as you see that nothing can be clung to, clung to you know, the, I, I may have even said it recently here, the, the central pith instruction of the Buddha was nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Whoever's heard this has heard everything. Whoever has practiced this has practiced the whole teaching. Whoever has realized this truth has realized the fruit of the teaching. Something in us lets go of that clinging to changing conditions it's not just a letting go, but something gets revealed when we let go. Another kind of insight. An insight into something wake, something reveals itself in our nature that is what the Buddha called, or what's typically called uh, Nibbana, the unconditioned, the unborn. What's revealed in us is an, a nature that is not this body, that's not this world or another world, neither moon nor sun, neither arising or passing away, something that is unconditionally happy and whole and complete and quiet and home, that is neither born nor dies. It's called the deathless, the unconditioned. And it turns out to be none other than the natural state of our own mind when we're not busy craving and looking and clinging, something in us wakes up. And so as the teacher Dogen put it, to, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study what we call ourselves. But to study what we call ourselves is to forget that self, is to see through that self. To forget that self is then to be awakened by everything to see that there is no inside, there's no outside, there's, there's no, there is no other. That we are intrinsically awake and filled with everything. And I noticed over the course of practice over many years, I don't want to, I'll stop in a minute. Just knowing that more and more and more, that nothing to be clung to, there's just been a more letting go. And what, what letting go means is not, it's not like somebody lets go. It's just there's, no more, there's not so much clinging to what usually preoccupies us. And when there's not much clinging to what preoccupies us, there's a lot of space. It's just quiet. It's just defaulting to quiet. And it doesn't mean that, I, you know, that because there, I default to quiet not being anybody in particular. That's kind of the default. It's simple, not so complicated. But then, of course, you get to see that part of what functions completely naturally is when there's a need to have an identity, like tonight I'm functioning in this role. Here, here it is, the, the guru, <laughs> the, the teacher. But then... The, I'm not defined by that because it, as soon as I leave here, I, I go home and no longer a guru. And then I'm sometimes husband and, or father. And this weekend I was um, son. I had my 94-year-old mother here for the weekend. That was wild. 
So for that time, I, I incarnate as the sun, but then default to quiet. And that realize that we don't really need to carry around these conceptions bags and letting the, let them burden us all the time. This cling to this idea of ourselves. We can just be quiet, be present. Try it for a minute. Having no view of yourself, as one sutra put it, you're always peaceful. And that free of a view of self is always available. Accompanies you every instant. It's just a matter of being that field of awareness. It's unconditioned. And then when you're See, there's a few things. All these different roles, we, we have identities, jobs, etc. And they're important functions, but it's only needed when you're engaging in those activities. And the other times is when somebody's projecting all kinds of stuff on you. And, uh, and that's our, our cultural identities, our you know, the systemic, the political, all that stuff, we, we tend to take on those kinds of identities. And, and, we, and especially the cultural ones, you know, sometimes I'm a Jewish guy. You know, especially when their people are anti-Semitic, which is increasing dramatically. Sometimes I'm, a, sometimes I'm a white guy. Sometimes I'm a privileged guy. Sometimes I'm a, um, sometimes I, those things, it's, in, I, I ignore those identities at, at risk, at my own risk. I will cause myself or others suffering if I'm not aware of those different identities and how they're functioning. All of our identities, all our differences, they're all wonderful but we're not defined by them. They don't tell the whole story of our nature. And we can, each of us can develop insight into the, the um, insubstantial nature of all those identities and be free. So this is really about liberation. It's not just about feeling good or having a quiet sitting or having a clear mind or even a tender heart. It's about liberation from that which binds us to this very narrow and limited view about ourselves. But how do we realize it? We turn toward what is happening moment by moment. We don't just go out into the cosmos. We notice, oh, this is sadness. This is joy. This is aching. This is burning. This is damning. We just meet each thing and see that none of it is self. It's changing and None, none of the forms of our experience will give us lasting satisfaction. Waking up may. So may we all be liberated. May we all keep the perspective of the blue dot during impeachment hearings. And uh, may our practice tonight and every night and every day be dedicated uh, to the welfare and benefit of all. Because it is that narrow view that keeps us hurting each other. So thank you for listening. Thanks for your generosity. See you in two weeks. Remember Anushka next week and uh, start reading, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.